Uh, hey everyone, really good to see you tonight. My name is Netani. I am one of the student ministers here at St. George North. Uh, so please also keep Psalm 32 open in front of you as we come to look at God's word. But I'm going to pray again before we do that. So let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we praise you for your word. Thank you that it makes us wise unto salvation, that it teaches, rebukes, corrects, and trains us in righteousness. But most of all tonight, Father, we pray that we might discover for the first time or rediscover the joy of forgiveness that is found in the Lord Jesus. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Uh, what brings you joy? What brings you joy? You can answer that in your own mind. I think the, the answer to that question is as varied as there are people in this room. It could be the big things in life, like a wedding or the birth of a child or finishing study or the new job. Or it could be smaller, simpler things, like catching the sunrise after your morning run or slipping into bed after a day full of activity. Or that moment when you're just about to watch Avengers Endgame. But thankfully, especially here in Australia, joy is a familiar thing for us, right? And despite our differences in what we find joy in, for Christians, we have a common joy, and that is the forgiveness we have in Jesus. And my prayer as we explore this psalm uh, is that we would either discover for the first time or rediscover this joy. Uh, with all the emotion and imagery and uh, poetry that's dripping from the book of Psalms. And so the, the question that hangs over this psalm in particular is how do we find this forgiveness that leads to joy, and then how do we live in light of it? So as we, we follow the psalms, uh, psalmist's prayer, we'll pass through three signposts, and you can follow along in your outlines uh, to answer this question. So let's look at the first, the experience of joy. And what is the psalmist joyful about? Verse 1, have a look. He says, How joyful is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How joyful is the man the Lord does not charge with sin or iniquity, and in whose spirit is no deceit. He doesn't talk about a joy, about birds or trees or butterflies or sunsets, although these are good things. He's not talking about a joy of a wedding day or the birth of a child or a new car, although these are good things too. Now, the psalmist goes deeper. He declares that joy comes to the person who has been forgiven, covered, and not charged. And it's a joy that has a sense of relief and freedom, right? A joy from a weight that has been lifted. And look at what weighed him down. He describes it in three different ways. Verse 1, transgression, uh, which we can think of as willful rebellion. Verse 1 again, sin which we can define as failing to meet a standard. And the ESV translation uses a third word for sin in verse 2, iniquity, and inward corruption. And so the psalmist covers the full breadth of what sin is, and not just the bad things you do, but the good things you fail to do. Not just failing in actions, but failing in your words and your thoughts. And not just a corrupted state, but a rebellious state, against God the Creator. And being free of these weights it is what leads to joy, the psalmist says. And this isn't just a general statement, uh, it's personal, 
It's from his own experience. Because how does he come to this conclusion? Well, we have to listen to the psalmist's testimony to find out. So that's our second signpost, the testimony of forgiveness. And at its most basic, a testimony is a before and after story. Like those uh, weight loss or makeover shows where you have someone looking a particular way one time. There's an amazing transformation or change in the middle. And then they look totally different in the back or afterwards. Uh, But for the psalmist, his before and after is much more desperate. Look from verse 3. The guilt of sin has silenced him. And so he says, my bones became brittle. He's wasting away from groaning all day long. He is in constant pain. Physical or spiritual, it's hard to say, maybe both. But his, his strength is drained like on a scorching hot day with no shelter or water. All because he is steeped in the guilt of his sin. And more than that, verse 4, day and night, God's hand is heavy on him. God, the judge who sees all, sees his guilt. And what guilt could be so heavy on him? Well, those italicized words at the top of the psalm, the superscription, tells us that King David is the writer of the psalm. And the Apostle Paul says so too in our New Testament reading that we just had. And so in the most harrowing incident of his reign, the famous King David sees and covets a woman named Bathsheba. He takes her. She becomes pregnant. All while Uriah, her husband, is away fighting in David's own special forces. And so to cover himself, David manipulates events so that Uriah would die in battle. It looks like David will literally get away with murder and adultery. That's, of course, until we read 2 Samuel eleven twenty-seven, that the Lord saw and considered what David had done to be evil. Nathan the prophet confronts David, and David is distraught. He's overcome with guilt. And so it's very likely that this is the suffocating guilt behind verse 3 and 4. But of course, guilt doesn't just come from heinous acts like murder and adultery, right? They come from the smaller things too, from, from any memory of our past sin, any failure to do the right thing might be the harsh word to a spouse or a child or a friend or the, the dishonest dealings at work or the struggle with pornography or the failure to speak up when you should have. And the list goes on. Guilt can be a crippling thing and we all experience it in some way or another. And the tendency is for us to bottle it up, uh, to hide as some attempt to ignore the guilt that niggles at their conscience, or others scramble to alleviate the pain with pills or alcohol or worse. I recently read an article that said, uh, according to psychiatrists and doctors, unresolved guilt is the number one cause of mental illness and suicide. And while I understand that certain situations call for medical help, uh, what the psalmist does next is groundbreaking. It finally brings relief. Verse 5. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not conceal my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you took away the guilt of my sin. Uh, what does he, or how does he find relief? 
for he accepts what he has done is wrong and brings it before God. In fact, he counters the descriptions of sin that we just heard before. He acknowledges his sin. He doesn't conceal his iniquity, and he confesses his transgression. And he does this all by addressing the one who is most offended by our sin, but also the one who is able to deal with our sin to God. And look again at the result of his confession, verse 5, and you took away the guilt of my sin. Uh, don't, don't let that wash over you too quickly. God took away the guilt of his sin. In the context of the Old Testament, this is unheard of. No animal sacrifice, no blood spill, no death required. Here we could say, what, what happened to paying the debt for sin? Or why is there no punishment for the crime? Because David simply says, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you took away the guilt of my sin. David the adulterer, David the murderer, is forgiven. His guilt is taken away. But of course, we know something that David did not know, right? His guilt was taken away, but it was taken away and placed on someone else. Uh, beyond comprehension, God takes the guilt of sin and places it on his one and only son. On the cross, God's hand was heavy on Jesus so that it wouldn't have to be heavy on us. Sin is not charged to our account because it was charged to his. And transgression was forgiven because he took the punishment that we deserved. And so this is the forgiveness we enjoy as Christians the turning point then of our testimonies is meeting this one who took our place. It's always uh, really encouraging to hear these before and after stories here at Snack. If you were at the big day out, you would have heard of Johnny's testimony. Uh, there are several amazing stories here in people uh, from 630 Church that I've heard as well. On college mission, students were prepped to have their testimonies ready to share. As a younger Christian, I used to hear other people's stories of coming to faith and feel like I lacked something. Uh, that was the exciting testimony. I was raised in a Christian home, uh, in a minister's home, and there hasn't been a day I did not know Jesus. So I thought my, my story was boring, uh, uneventful, and not worth sharing. In a crowd like this, I know I might not be the only one who has felt this before. But this is to miss something huge. The seriousness of the state that we were in and what it took to bring us out. We only appreciate what comes after if we understand how desperate things were before. And so our before is guilty. And our after is forgiven. We have a forgiveness paid for by God's own son. We have a forgiveness that simply comes by having faith in him. And so how much greater should our joy and our relief be than David's? Paul uses David's words in Romans 4 to express that joy in forgiveness is by faith. This is David's testimony of forgiveness then, that in silence he was drowning in guilt, but in confession he was pulled out and found not guilty. And so no wonder he's overflowing with joy in those opening verses. Now, we could finish the psalm there, and it would be great, right? We, we end with rejoicing. 
but there is more. Have a look at the first word of verse 6. Therefore, which means we should ask what is the therefore, therefore, uh, because the following verses come in light of what has come before. Remember, our question is not just how to find forgiveness, but how to live in light of it. And actually, if you look up at the superscription again, this is what a maskil is. It's an instructive psalm. Insights and instructions from the experience of the psalmist. Because now the psalmist turns to explain what any forgiven sinner would do. He instructs others to trust in God. So that's our third signpost, the instruction to trust. So look at verse 6. David says, Therefore, let everyone who is faithful pray to you at a time you may be found. When great floodwaters come, they will not reach him. Suddenly, there's a sense of urgency, uh, the urgency of praying in confession to God while there is still time. David's testimony has been that confession, not silence, leads to forgiveness. And so if we leave this psalm and not see this as the priority, then we've missed the point. So, do you know this forgiveness? Or is guilt still overbearing? God's word tonight urges us to humble confession. Because there will be a time when God will not be found. There will be a time when it will be too late. A time when sin cannot be forgiven, cannot be covered, and will be counted against you. And it makes sense that the sinner would run from the presence of a holy God. And that's what happens. The guilt of sin pushes us to run from God, like Adam and Eve, rather than running to Him. And it pushes us to stay away from church, when actually the thing we need most is to be at church with those who can point us to Christ or help bear our burdens. And so if we really understand who God is, then we should run to Him. So, pray tonight. Do it in the quietness of your own heart, or pray with someone after the service. Because like the prodigal son practicing his apology for the father he has wronged, the sinner who returns home is surprised to find that the father is already running to him, ready to forgive. And so this is the irony. The judge we fear is actually the refuge we put our faith in. He is the one who shelters us from the raging floodwaters of verse 6, the floodwaters of guilt and sin. And so even as waters rise, guilt will not drown us. In humble prayer, then, David finds, verse 7, a hiding place, protection, and deliverance. So remember who this God is and turn to him in prayer. Now, if turning to God in prayer is the instruction, uh, David also gives a warning. He switches from praying to God to speaking on God's behalf to the people. So come down to verse 8. He says, I will instruct you and show you the way to go. With my eye on you, I will give counsel. Do not be like a horse or mule without understanding. That must be controlled with bit and bridle, or else it will not come near you. And now this is a, a, an interesting warning. Don't be like a horse or mule. Amongst the farm animals, one of the hardest to discipline or direct is the mule. They were, were bred for carrying goods or carrying people, uh, and they were good at it, but notorious for being stubborn. You may have heard the saying, stubborn as a mule. 
And so what owners or riders use to steer or control the mule is the bit that goes in their mouth and the bridle that goes over their head. And so only when they have this on can you control the animal. Uh, David's point, the sinner is a stubborn mule, uh, lacking understanding and difficult to control. And what is he reluctant to do? Well, is it not confessing his sin? Is it not turning to the God who offers forgiveness? Because as the mule digs his heels into the ground and refuses to submit to instruction, the sinner refuses to turn to God. This is the person who knows that what they have done is wrong, yet refuses to admit it. This is the person who is content to stay silent and keep sin secret. But it isn't hidden from God. This is the person who denies that guilt isn't even there, yet time is running out. And now you might be thinking about someone in particular at this point. Uh, Keep picturing them in your mind. Uh, Now take them out. Uh, God's word is talking about you. You know there's times when you've done something wrong but refuse to admit it. Not just to a family member or a friend, but to God. When you tell yourself in your head, I know I'm wrong, but I'm going to take my stand anyway. And you know how I know you do this? Because I do it. And we all do it. And there may have been an incident this past week where you noticed yourself slowly turning into a mule. Maybe you had some ears that started to grow up like this, or a muzzle that started to appear, or a tail. Like that horror movie, uh, Disney's Pinocchio. But actually, the psalmist's warning is serious. He's shared the consequences of stubbornness earlier and the danger of being a mule. Because how can we know God's forgiveness and still be so stubborn to confess? So stubborn to humble ourselves. So I can almost guarantee something will happen this coming week that will test you. And you'll feel yourself digging your heels into the ground Don't. Don't be a mule. That is David's warning. But does this mean that we earn forgiveness? No. It simply means that you admit your inability to deal with sin and guilt and trust that God can. Actually, that he already has on the cross. Because what is the the reverse of being stubborn? Verse 10, trust Many pains come to the wicked, but the one who trusts in the Lord will have faithful love surrounding him. Why would we not trust in the God who has already shown faithful love? He has already given a way for guilt to be taken away. He is the God who is more ready to forgive than we are to confess. And there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans chapter 8 verse 1. And so as as David finishes, he turns and addresses those who have trusted in God. Because forgiveness hasn't just been about David's personal experience, but about teaching God's people by it. Leading them to confession and joy in community. Testimonies then aren't really about the person telling the story, right? But about the one who has caused the change. About the one who removes the guilt of sin. And so as David started with joy, he ends with joy. Verse 11. 
Brothers and sisters, be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous ones. Not sinless people, but forgiven people. He continues, shout for joy, all you upright in heart. This is what forgiven people do. They rejoice. Because the forgiveness we have is undeserved and paid for. And it frees us from the weight of sin and guilt. Let me close in prayer for us. Father in heaven, how joyful is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How joyful is the one who you do not charge with sin and in whose spirit is no deceit. If we do not know this joy, then reveal it to us, Father. If we do know it, then restore it within us. In Jesus' name, amen.